Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Blue Barrel producer Lan Lee, here to let you know that while BPP episodes will continue to be syndicated on the New Books Network, starting with season two, we are expanding our scope beyond Buddhism. Not all upcoming episodes will appear in the NBN Buddhism feed. To catch all of our episodes, you can subscribe directly to the Blue Barrel podcast. That's blue the color, B-E-R-Y-L. Now... On with the show. So hello, everyone. I'm here with Pierre Salguero, an old associate and uh, colleague, senior colleague in the academic field. And uh, he's a professor of East Asian religions, history and medicine. Is that correct? At Penn State University at Abington. That's right. And also the author, editor of a number of books. And I'd like to highlight his titles on Buddhist medicine both in the modern and pre-modern eras, and a more recent text on the global history of Buddhist medicine. So welcome, Pierce. It's good to, it's good to see you. We haven't, we haven't spoken in a little while, so it's good to catch up. Yes, I wanted to use this time to ask some questions that you may not have answered in other podcasts and interviews so that we can learn a, more about your work and research and interests. So I'm thinking rather than to go progressively, it's just to jump right in. It might seem haphazard, but a colleague of yours has just published a text called Situating Medicine and Religion. So this Mm -hmm. dichotomy, how do you see these two domains of medicine and religion breaking down in scholarly discourse? And then how is that shifting your perspectives on Buddhist medicine? Yeah, great, great. Yeah, so the author or the editor of that volume, Situating Religion and Medicine in Asia, is Michael Stanley Baker. He's a really good friend of mine. And, and actually, I was very closely involved with the creation of that, that volume. It came out of a conference that happened, I think it was 2016 in Berlin, that I was part of, I guess, like a co-organizer of it. And um, I was involved with pretty much every step of the early con- conceptualization of the book. But more than that, Michael Stanley Baker and I are really good friends. We, we came up through grad school at the same time. We graduated and wrote our theses right, right around the same time. And so we've been interlocutors, really good friends, yin and yang to each other for, for decades at this point. So I feel like our thinking has really, really informed each other in a lot of ways, both explicitly, but also just, just through conversations, like implicitly. We've shared a lot and disagreed a lot too. So, so, so I think the, one of the main differences between Michael's work and my work 
so far, and I'm not saying that wouldn't change in the future, but in terms of our publications and our um, dissertation theses and so forth, like the preponderance of Michael's work has been situating Taoist practices within the local, sometimes very local, hyper-local Chinese context, very much looking at Taoist practice as a, a product of and a reflection of local sensibilities within China, within a particular part of China, within particular lineages, within particular families. The preponderance of my work has been much more global. And part of that is because Buddhism is a global tradition as far back as we have records, we have Buddhism all around Asia. And as a result, my, my work has tended to, if I'm thinking about situating um, Buddhist medicine, I'm thinking in a much more uh, trans-regional, trans-pan-Asian you know, context. So what I'm interested in, I would say, is... Uh, a duality or like an intersection, or, or I don't know how you'd say it, but, but between the transnational global context, what circulates, what what's translated and moved across cultures, and then looking at how that's situated locally, how is that translated into local contexts? How is how does that play out locally? So I feel like that's a major distinction between Mike's work and, and my work, just in terms of how we are weighting larger global movements of ideas and objects versus the local context. Uh, so for me, looking at the categories of religion and medicine, like you were just asked, like you were just articulating, for me, the that fits very much with the project of defining Buddhist medicine as a field of inquiry and not a specific tradition. So I would say that the relationship between religion and medicine is one of the primary questions in the field of Buddhist medicine. So as a scholar in the field of Buddhist medicine, when I go and look at a culture, one of the questions I've got in my mind to ask of that culture is, do you have a category like the category of religion in English? Do you have a category that's like the category of medicine in English? And it turns out in some cultures, they do make distinctions that are more or less a good fit for the distinction that we have between religion and medicine, but not all places do. So just a reminder that the categories of religion and medicine, these English words come out of a European cultural history. They're, they're early modern distinctions that were made for specific historical reasons in Europe. We've inherited those categories in the English language. It does not necessarily mean that those categories existed in other places and other times in the same way. And so one of the questions I'm asking of the literature when I read it is, are people making boundaries like that? Are they saying this stuff is religion and this stuff is medicine? Are they making distinctions like that? And so I spent a very long time looking at um, medieval China for my dissertation and my first academic book. And my conclusion there was no, in the Chinese Buddhist materials, the distinctions were not being made along the same lines that we mean when we call something religion and something medicine. Um, in that cultural context, the distinctions were being made between social categories. So physicians were different than Buddhist monks, but what they practiced, right, was not necessarily seen in terms of like, that belongs to this category, that belongs to that category. And so there's a lot of blending between what we would call religion and medicine in English. And I tried to capture that by using in, in my first book, the word 
religio medical. It's a little bit clunky, but like my idea was that we are losing more than we gain if we want to try to separate out religion and medicine in medieval China. That we're more accurately reflecting that local context if we are thinking of religion and medicine in a much more blended way. When I look at Buddhist medicine in the contemporary period, I'm interested to learn from you what we can learn from the past and about our specific cultural context. And mm -hmm. I know your dissertation and your approaches in your first book, Translating Buddhist Medicine, so you were just touching on some of those processes of indigenization or cultural reception in China of India's ideas. But now, after these last volumes and your present work, are there any surprises or anything that you would have wanted to incorporate in the previous two volumes, anthologies I'm speaking of? Mm. Some surprises yeah. in terms of now having this more global view, something that you've learned or didn't expect or challenged a, a, a hypothesis? Yeah. I mean, I guess... There's a lot that I wouldn't have known at the beginning that I know now. So definitely the idea of Buddhist medicine as a field and not a tradition was something that I came to along the way. If you would ask me back when I was a practitioner of Thai medicine about what is Buddhist medicine, I probably would have answered in a very different way than I am today. So that was, I think that was a shift. And uh, another shift is also that I can very confidently say right now that there is no one Buddhist perspective on medicine. <laughs> there's, there, there's like every different tradition of Buddhism in every different cultural manifestation has a different view about the health, the body, uh, disease, cure. And so my I, my notion of Buddhist medicine, if anything, has gone from being more like limited and linear and um, monolithic to just having been completely fractured into um, a million different pieces. So so that's like kind of the the trajectory of my own thinking about Buddhist medicine has been for me to continuously learn the lesson. Oh, this is you know it's not one thing. It's not the same everywhere. It's different. It's different. It's different. Um, that, that's, I think, the continuous lesson. Um, that's not to say there's nothing there, because like just like you know Buddhist art when you see it, you know Buddhist medicine when you see it. And I still feel like you could drop me anywhere in the world and blindfolded and I could explain the medicine to me and I could tell you if it was Buddhist or not. But even though there's no checklist, there there is a kind of an in intuitive sense that I have that there is a some kind of core uh, there. But my like I was saying, my education has really been educating me out of essentializing the tradition. So in your interview with Francis Garrett, there was one comment about being a more public-facing scholar. So you work more cross-disciplinarily. That's involved you involved engaging with scholars of different disciplines. One of the things I took away was how that's impacting scholarly work, but also education. So hmm. I want to bring in something about how practice informs your teaching and scholarly work. But one was wonderful emphasis on embodiment and embodied pedagogy. You had a discussion with Francis Garrett, and I noticed that you had also been working on shifting the way you teach and bring some of this into the context of learning. And so you wrote a blog post called Pedagogy of Soul, so I'm mm -hmm. going to ask you if you would answer one of three 
I invite uh, listeners to read this uh, blog post, but one of these questions, if you'd answer, and you ask this to, to some of your colleagues, is there one memory that you'd hope students would take away from your class and retain 50 years from now? Or is there a single most transformative insight that you've gained from all of your years studying your specialization, which remains meaningful to your life beyond academia? I'm quite interested in what's the best way that you've used face-to-face -face classroom time if the goal is for students to, to discover their deepest selves or any of these questions, do you have a, an example or, or answer for? Yeah, sure. Yeah, definitely. So yeah. And again, thanks for reading closely and listening closely to, to, to the things that I'm putting out. So yeah, I guess the subtext here for that post that I made is for your listeners who aren't necessarily in the academy, I don't know if maybe you're aware of this or not, but within the academy, there has been a culture of really radically separating or compartmentalizing the academic study of religion or of medicine or of whatever the topic is, really compartmentalizing that from the rest of your life. And so I think this comes this comes really out of the 19th century, early 20th century in religious studies, an effort to extract uh, a secular religious studies out of theology and Bible studies and so forth. So real emphasis on the text and the historical context, the philosophies divorced from any kind of like personal engagement or faith or relevance of those texts. And so I think that probably was a product of a historical moment where the pendulum swung from one end to the other. Uh, but um, I've been, so I came up in actually two fields as a scholar where I felt that kind of, um, did that kind of compartmentalization. So both in the history of medicine, history of Asian medicine, um, which was my corner of the field, but history of medicine more broadly, uh, there was a, you know, a strong compartmentalization. We study the history of medicine. We don't ever look at efficacy. We don't ever look at, we don't ever ask questions about what the benefits of these practices are. Right. And then also that same compartmentalization in the history of religions or the scholarly study of religions, where we study in my subfield, Buddhist studies, we study Buddhism in a vacuum. We don't talk about the actual benefits that Buddhism might've brought to us or not, or to what extent we engage in those practices ourselves, we treat it as an object of neutral scholarly study. So, so that, that perspective ha certainly has its strengths, certainly has its, um, its, yeah, I don't want to discount its value because we don't, we're in universities and universities are not seminaries. They're not Bible schools. We are teaching in secular and I'm at a public university. So teaching in an explicitly secular environment. So I'm not advocating, I want to make that clear. I'm not advocating indoctrinating students into Buddhism or Chinese medicine or yoga or whatever. That's not what I'm talking about at all. But what I'm advocating in that blog and in some other places is let's not throw out the baby with the bathwater. Like we can teach in a secularized environment in a secularized way while still recognizing the full humanity of our students and ourselves. Right. So that's what I'm looking for in these blog posts. There's actually this pedagogy of the soul is like a series now with four or five posts where I'm looking for looking for that human dimension 
in our in our pedagogy, right? So so we're not just teaching brains. We're not just like downloading information or teaching new conceptual perspectives um, to students. We're actually standing in the classroom, human beings standing in a space together in bodies, right? In physical space and in some kind of like energetic relationship with one another. And I feel that those dimensions of the classroom are, are usually completely overlooked or poo-pooed or just ignored altogether within within the field. So within the, the two fields. So I'm, I'm certainly not the only person to have made this kind of shift. Francis Garrett is a is I think a, a real pioneer in this area. And I've learned a, a ton from her. She's actually was the person that sparked my interest in this, moving in this direction to begin with. So I'm certainly not the only person, but yeah, for, for me, the way I've chosen to express it is a pedagogy of the soul. Uh, other people talk about embodied pedagogy or uh, trauma-aware pedagogy or, and, and um, pedagogy of flourishing. There's ungrading. There's all kinds of other movements out there, all little bits and pieces that I've looked at and incorporated some from. But I, I'm using the word soul. That's an extreme word within the field of religious studies. People don't throw around that word so lightly. And I did that on purpose to maybe like shake it up a little bit or like drop a bomb or, or like have a, a more sort of like impactful way of um, stirring the pot a little bit. And yeah, what I'm getting at is, yeah, I think for me anyway, in my context, in my university, my classroom is probably one of the very few spaces where students have the opportunity to learn something that could be literally life transforming. Um, they may take two humanities classes in their entire career in college. And one of, if one of them is going to be mine, I'm going to, I want to make it worthwhile. And so that does not mean indoctrinating them. I'm not like pushing Buddhism down their throats or anything like that, but I am thinking like, how can I make this experience of being in this classroom, something that's a, they're going to remember forever and B, that's going to actually like have the potential to transform them in some really deep way. It's hard to do, really hard to do. Students these days are like, well, not even these days. I mean, even before the pandemic, students were just plugged into their phones, like, like, like staring at the phone all the time, like barely in their bodies to begin with. And then we had the pandemic, which I think for a lot of students was enormously traumatic. We have a whole generation of kids that lost out on the ordinary high school stuff that I'm assuming you did, James. I certainly did. Like just What's <laughs> that? In-person graduations is a big one. Yeah. Well, I just mean like hanging out, like hanging out with friends, like chatting all night long, like, like in, in, personal proximity in, in embodied spaces together, they lost out on all the dating and all the like partying and everything, all the social stuff that is so important for teenagers to really establish their selves and their identities and, and who they are and how they can be in the world. And I think I, I'm, we're definitely noticing like a shell-shocked generation of students coming through right now who, are, who have obviously missed certain opportunities like that and are suffering from it. And so like, yeah, that the value of like my class, what can I do to really impact these students has been weighing on me, not weighing on me. It's been enticing me as a question, particularly since the pandemic. And so I, I what I've done is pivoted in my classes. Oh, I, I, I already was doing this pivot before, but now I've pivoted hard from really focusing on content, really focusing on like knowledge. You're going to learn ABC, XYZ and replacing some of those content 
knowledge-based modules with more embodied, active uh, types of learning. And I'm, I'm making the argument, and Francis and others would say this too, which is that we're not, it, it's all learning. What we're doing is we're incorporating some bodily learning, um, some learning with other parts of you, some emotional learnings, some soul learning, right, into the classroom in addition to the mental learning. So I think we've suffered from a myopia where, oh, learning is just what is just words in your brain um, and or words in your mind. And we're looking at more, yeah, other kinds of learning, other kinds of ways of being. I mean, does that sound like Buddhism a little bit? <laughs> like, I think, it, I think it does. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of, of overlap between, or let's say there, there's a lot of Buddhist insights that have found their way into Francis and my pedagogy, and that's not accidental. We're not teaching Buddhism. I'm certainly not teaching Buddhism. But when I encourage my students to do an embodied exercise and feel something deeply in their body, yeah, did I learn about that through Buddhism? Yes. So it's not necessarily Buddhist, but it's a... Buddhist adjacent kind of insight, I think. Yeah. So what are, you, you asked me um, three questions. They're, they're great yeah. questions. Using uh, one of them, is there a memory that you hope students would take away? Is there a single most transformative insight that you yeah. apply from your specialization or how do you bring, and I think you answered this, but uh, how do you bring the, that wisdom and depth of experience within an academic environment? Yeah, I think I was answering the third one. But uh, yeah, so like, I'll just give you an example of the, the, the first two, which is uh, during the pandemic, uh, like as a result of these kinds of th this kind of thinking, I developed a class, which I proposed through the system and became an official class called, uh, so it's a religion and Asian studies class. And it's called, uh, what is the self? And we're going to explore the self. What does that mean from different Asian religious contexts? So obviously in Hinduism, there's like the Atman, the Brahman, in Buddhism, you have the Anatman, you have the different views of what the self is and Taoism and Confucianism and, and, and other traditions have their own views as well. And so knowledge content, words in the brain content, it's a, it's a humanities class. We're going we're gonna to read scriptures. We're going to look at historical materials. But then also in the class, I do, I do uh, practices with the students, secularized versions of practices. Let's try out some of these techniques or some of these inquiries that these religious materials are talking about and see how they land. Let's see if we agree. Let's see if we, if it changes our way of thinking about who we are. Let's see if there's any impact whatsoever. Let's see what we make of these. And so I lead them in some exercises of self-inquiry and uh, meditation and so forth, like on the aggregates and different kinds of practices to, to try to like have them analyze like what is this self they've maybe never looked at it so again it's not a religious indoctrination but it is like extracting some of the tools from the asian religions and applying them in a secular context to see what we make of them not saying that this is the truth because we're introducing like seven or eight different opinions about the truth and having students explore so what would i like them to remember 50 years from now about that experience is they're not going to get that in their math class, right? They're not going to get this moment of like, I'm like an embodied human being with consciousness or like, I'm, I'm here, I'm present. This is these kinds of like responses that you can very easily have using some of these techniques and, and experiencing a certain level of self-awareness or consciousness. They're not going to get that from math class. They're not going to get that in their biology class. And I think for the students who take the class seriously and do these exercises and they have an experience like that, yeah, they'll remember that in 50 years. Thank you. My next question is, 
what can healthcare practitioners, providers, even Asian medicine clinicians learn from the uh, study of Buddhist medicine? I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off i so i guess the for me looking through all of these various different cultural contexts and different types of buddhism different ideas about medicine and the body and so forth i think what, what i've taken away from that is i guess if you want to really boil it down to like the most oversimplified kind of like kernel of similarity or continuity between all those traditions. The most simplified version of it is to say that one of the major kind of like most glaring contributions of Buddhist medicine is to really take seriously the connection between mind and body. And not all medical traditions have done that. Certainly biomedicine has started to do that more than it did. Like in the 20th century, biomedicine was very physicalist and very material material body focused. And I think Buddhism, really like all forms of Buddhism, have lots of tools and lots of ideas about how mind and body interact with one another. I think the research that's been happening into mindfulness has been amazing but it's really just one like small slice of this enormous pie, right? There's just tons and tons of Buddhist knowledge, wisdom about the mind and body interrelation. And to just only focus on this one variety of technique is I think very short-sighted. So I, I think there's a lot out there that Buddhism has to offer in this, in the skillful, uh, skillful approaches to mind, body, health. So, so that's one thing that I think clinicians of any kind can take away. The, the second thing, and this is a little bit more, yeah, it's a little bit more complicated than the first observation, but it's still distilling down like everything I know about Buddhist medicine from all over the, the world and distilling it down into another kind of like nugget. Um, I would say is the Bud Buddhist healing practices, Buddhist medical practices, Buddhist therapies, like across the board in any given culture, always seem to be operating on the basis of multiple paradigms simultaneously, multiple like epistemologies simultaneously. So mindfulness is an example of how you could take something from Buddhism, which has a different epistemology, and turn it into a biomedical epistemology, right? Mindfulness is an example of how something can be extracted from one paradigm and made to fit into another, right? It's 
mindfulness is no longer about deconstructing the self and realizing nirvana or the empty nature of reality or whatever. Mindfulness is now how to be productive at work and how to have less stress and how to be... Neuroceptive awareness. Right, right. So it's an example of, it's it's a counterexample to what I'm talking about. So what I see when I look at Buddhist cultures is they're actually, they're, their healing is actually operating on several different epistemological uh, levels simultaneously. So in all the Buddhist traditions I know, there is, for example, an emphasis on um, karma and understanding how karma causes disease, how karma karmic effects can contribute to, to health or or, or lack thereof, how karmic effects can help to heal, et cetera. So there's like a karmic dimension or framework or epistemology or paradigm, whatever word you want to use. Buddhist cultures also forward almost always, even in the modern period, a paradigm based on spirits, on like evil spirits causing disease. Different kinds of spirits can attack you and and you develop one, one or another condition. And then there's a whole variety of different treatments and preventions for those. And then also Buddhist traditions all over the world, as far as I know, all of them have always borrowed or incorporated medical ideas from whatever culture they're in. So Chinese Buddhism has, you know, acupuncture and herbs and and Tibetan Buddhism has Tibetan interventions and Japanese Buddhist texts have Japanese interventions and they have incorporated knowledge from the sort of the mainstream medical ideas. And that's another paradigm. And then at least in Mahayana traditions, which is the vast majority of Buddhist traditions in the world, there's also the paradigm of emptiness, which is just to say that like the paradigmless paradigm, right? Where paradigms can be shifted in and out of freely without, without constraint, as long as there's skillful means, because no paradigm is necessarily the accurate description of the universe, right? So, so, so Buddhist traditions worldwide have these different paradigms going on simultaneously. Like you go to the healer in Myanmar and you're going to get an exorcism and some kind of karmic therapy and some kind of like herbal medicine that comes from the local traditions of medicine. These days, you probably also would get some interventions that are being brought in from biomedicine as well, because all the Buddhist countries have access to biomedical ideas and therapies too. And so Buddhist healers worldwide are really adept at combining three, four, five, six different paradigms into one kind of package of treatments. And that's something I think would be really valuable to think about doing in the clinical context in in the West. We actually have access to far more medical paradigms than a healer in Myanmar does, given the multicultural, multi-religious population of the United States where you and I live or a lot of Western countries, we have access to the internet. We have all kinds of different paradigms available to us and we're able to interact with those in, in deep ways. Not I'm, I'm not advocating just dilettantism, but like actually like deeply learning these different paradigms and employing them simultaneously within the, the healing space. To me, like there, there are questions about like authenticity and questions about like what's real Buddhist practice and what's not, and what's really, what really belongs in a Chinese clinic versus what doesn't. And those are all questions that clinicians can work out as far as I'm concerned, (laughs) you guys decide. But from where I sit, just as a human being, what I've noticed is that the more levels you provide healing on for the person, the better. If you could be providing physical and energetic and psychological and spiritual and karmic and social healing 
as part of one kind of like cohesive package, I think your patients are going to be doing a lot better than if you're just choosing one or one, one of those frameworks and collapsing everything into that one framework. So uh, it's an argument for like an integrative medicine approach as opposed to an al complementary alternative medicine approach, but integration of multiple paradigms that don't necessarily have to fit together. I'm, I'm with the, I'm with the Mahayana Buddhists on that. Like who cares if they fit together or not, if they're providing healing, I'd say bring them all. So those are, those are my opinions. So you asked for my opinions. Those are my opinions. <laughs> um, what you guys do in the clinic, that's totally like down to you to decide what you're comfortable with practicing, what you're comfortable in incorporating into your clinical practice, what, where you think the boundaries are, what shouldn't be done in a particular clinic. That's your own private consideration, but I'm, I'm a medical pluralist in terms of what I, what I think is best for most people is to just treat on all sorts of different levels. And that's something I learned from Buddhist medicine. Uh, one thing that we see is a shift in the field, moving away from just text-based philological discussions to really getting into the lived experience of these disciplines. You had the Jivaka project. I recall that you were doing a West Coast tour interviewing contemporary Buddhist healers. And so that really gets into ethnography and it really gets you into the lived experience of these practices. So I was just wondering how the field is shifting to include other forms or methods of research. And mm -hmm. if you have a shout out to any colleague or a new dissertation also, just pushing it forward uh, that you've seen that have that are making a nice contribution. So one, how is the field changing in terms of contemporary Buddhist meditation contexts? And then also, is there anything on the radar that people should read that you'd like to spotlight? Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I love the question. Actually, you're, you're such a close follower of the podcast that you're actually asking me questions about the episode that we haven't even dropped yet, which is great. Um, so yeah, the next episode is going to come out in the first week of January is going to be an interview with um, Amy Langenberg. And in, in that work, in, in that episode, we were talking about this exact question. I'm asking her this question and we chat about it a little bit. So your viewers can go check that out when it comes out and see somebody else's opinion about it. I'll, here, I'll just share my opinion. I'll let Amy speak for herself. So my, my opinion is that the, the, in the same way that there's been a shift recently towards more embodied forms of pedagogy coming out of like a 19th, 20th century, more rigid sort of framework for what university teaching should look like, we're also pivoting out of a more restrictive idea of what proper scholarship should look like. So 19th, 20th century scholarship of religion more generally, of Buddhism in particular, was actually highly influenced by Protestant Christianity in ways that we're just digging ourselves out from now as a field. And I actually feel like the Protestant kind of under undertoes are, are still there with a lot of practitioners and a, and a lot of people in like the general public. And one of the chief ways that Protestantism has influenced people's understanding of Buddhism is Protestant, and this is not my theory, this is scholars have written about this, but there's a, in, in Protestantism, a strong focus on 
the word of the text, the Bible, right? So if you want to know what Protestant Christianity is about, right, you read the Bible and it's the Bible is the word, it's the truth. It's that's the sort of the touchstone for everything that you need to know. It's always the text. And so if you bring that mentality, if you've been raised in a Protestant culture and a lot of the scholars from the 19th, 20th, early 20th century were, right, and you bring that attitude to the study of Buddhism, you come into Buddhism with the attitude that like, what's true is in the text, right? If I want to study Buddhism, I should study the text. I should study the historical text. And that's what the field did for generations studied the text. That was it. You want to know what Buddhism is? You read the Pali Canon. You want to know what Tibetan Buddhism is? You read the Tibetan scriptures. And so scholarship meant reading, like learning this, learning the languages, reading those texts, translating those texts, interpreting those texts, talking about those texts, text, 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 text. That was it. That was scholarship. And that has been changing now in the last decades. It's been since maybe like the, I guess the nineties, it really started to shift heavily into other kinds of methodologies. So of course there was always anthropology as a separate field, but that but at that point we started to incorporate anthropological ethnographic study of Buddhism into the the field of religious studies. But it was always it was always like those people over there. So it was always this kind of like the kind of anthropology that, that was being produced in the 20th century was tended to focus on the exotic other um, quote unquote, right, the exotic other and uh it was not very much it wasn't thought of as being very uh, rigorous at all or worthwhile at all to study buddhism here in the us for example that kind of came in a later wave of scholars who started to look more at what western buddhism looks like what asian american buddhism looks like and then also different groups not just oh let's study Burmese Buddhists, but let's study the experience of Burmese Buddhist women. Let's study the experience of disabled Japanese Buddhists. Let's study this more and more of a, a focus on different populations and their, the uniqueness of their different experiences to get more and more voices into the conversation. I, I feel like that's really been the last, last decade or so has really started to move in that direction. And yeah, and I think we still have the conservative voices in the field who are like, that's nonsense. You should be studying the Pali Canon, right? But um, we have people like Amy Langenberg, who's on the podcast um, next month, who ha is a scholar with tremendous philological skill, who's spent a lot of time translating Tibetan and Sanskrit materials, who also, so, so she translates like the Vinaya. You can't get more like old school than that, who also does ethnography and thinks about gender and women's experiences and speaks to contemporary issues. She's got a project right now with another colleague of ours, Ang Lag, where they're looking at sexual abuse within Buddhist communities, for example. So a lot of people are now adept at both philology and ethnography. And I guess, yeah, I guess I'm one of those people who likes to combine those two as well, because my dissertation, early book, it's all about philology. It's all about translation, textual translation. I did a ton of translation, but like you said, in the last, what is it, like six or seven years, I've pivoted towards doing uh, more and more ethnography studies of Asian American Buddhist communities, as well as Buddhist American Buddhist communities more generally, looking at how they approach health and healing. A lot of that stuff, because it's been published in the last six or seven years, is all open access, so so people can find that through my website. But yeah, so so I feel like the 
I'm describing a trajectory of the field of religious studies becoming more and more capacious, more and more interdisciplinary, more and more interested in different methodologies, different populations, different cultural contexts. And I feel like, yeah, I feel like it's these days, it's much, much more open as a field than it ever has been. And you asked me to, you asked me to pick out some. It's forward. Anything that's really. Yeah, absolutely. So or that you're really enjoying. Yeah, what I the scholar that I would like to point people to is, is Kin Chung. His surname is spelled C H E U N G. He's somebody that I've been working with on a couple of collaborative things for a little while now, and he's he is Chinese American from a Cantonese family, and he works on these days. His project is working on the. Buddhist healing practices of his father, who is a community ritualist in a ritualist for a community of students and, and patients that he sees in the New York area. And the reason, so this was another podcast episode and would definitely like to point people towards that. Then they can hear Kin talk about his dad's practice, talk about what it means to him to be able to research his father and to be able to publish and be taken seriously within the field to publish work about his father. This is an example of the kind of non-textual practice that would have been completely forbidden or, or, or uninteresting in, in the field just a couple of decades ago. And one of the points he makes in the interview, which I thought was really telling, is that he talks about even now, he, as a scholar in a religion department, he says he has this was before he got tenure, before he was like an established scholar, that he had no problem whatsoever talking to about his colleagues, talking to his colleagues in his department about going to a meditation retreat. But he was very reluctant to talk about the fact that his father is doing exorcisms on neighbors, right? And, and that's because of the Protestant biases still in the field, right? Even in, 20, in the 2020s where certain kinds of practices are, are because they have an analog within the Protestant world are okay, right? You can do contemplation, you can do text reading, you can do prayer, but if you're doing something weird, like exorcism, you know, quote unquote weird, like exorcism or, or energy healing or whatever, then this is something that you don't really talk about in the academy. So I feel like as Kins become more established in his in, as, as a, in his professional position, he's been able to, to challenge those norms. And so I want to draw people's attention to that, both because it's a really interesting interview and his father is really an interesting person, but also because that's exactly the kind of pushing of the boundaries that I think is needed in the field. It's one of the things I'm trying to do with the podcast. And, and it's, yeah, it's, I think, a much needed breath of fresh air in the conversation. But I want to talk about the landscape of Buddhist healing in yeah. North America. So there were three projects, Pierce, that you wrote on. One of them was Buddhism and Healing. There was an online survey. The second was a discussion of the Jivaka project. And then a pre-publication article on Buddhism and medicine in America, which I'm really excited to get to. So if it's okay, why don't we jump in and explore this online survey. Can you tell us a little bit about its objectives and how you went about contacting Buddhist practitioner demographics? So the, the online survey was something that happened, I think, I'm going to forget now, I think it started in 2014 and, and was open, maybe it started in 2015, and it was open for many years. I was gathering 
people's responses. And it fi we finally did the last round of data collection during the COVID pandemic. So late later in 2020, I believe. So I wrote up the results of the study and published them in 2022 in the a journal called Pacific World with, under the title Beyond Mindfulness, Buddhism and Health in the U.S. And kind of the title is the argument of the piece, which is to say that there's been so much attention paid to mindfulness in the U.S., in the public media, in the popular media. And this has, I mean, rightfully so, because there's some really exciting results that are coming out of the scientific community, whether it's neuroscience or medical research or psycho psychological research. There's a lot of really great benefits for, for the, the practice of mindfulness. And so that tends to be the piece of Buddhist health advice that gets all the press at the expense of the all the other things that buddhism has to offer in terms of health and well-being and so you know as a historian who's looked at like the global history of buddhist interventions healthcare interventions over the long term i was also very curious about to what extent the wider range of buddhist practices was being embraced in the united states and i had done some ethnography in philadelphia among buddhist temples here that i think that's the second piece that you wanted to talk about. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But that research project had already begun. And so I knew that there was significant Asian American communities that were doing all kinds of practices related to health. But I was curious about like the wider demographic. And so I uh, created a survey, online survey, and distributed it widely through social media platforms that I'm affiliated with or that I was aware of. So we eventually wound up with around, I'm going to forget the numbers, but 300 some odd respondents from across a wide range of different racial, ethnic, socioeconomic, geographic locations in the U.S. And they responded to a number of questions about their views about health and the connections between Buddhism and health. And I guess the over the overwhelming conclusion from the study, the big takeaway point is that Buddhists are looking to Buddhism for healthcare resources more broadly, far beyond just mindfulness, but a whole range of different practices, different kinds of teachings. And also the social component was very prominent too, the way that Buddhist organizations give people a social community and a, and a setting in which they feel like their healthcare needs are being met also. Yeah, so just a snapshot of a wide swath of American Buddhists really emphasizing how centrally, how, how central of a role health is playing in their practice of Buddhism. If we can tie in this other article, Varieties of Buddhist Healing in Multi-Ethnic Philadelphia, it really spoke to my own lived experience reading these two articles. One, about immigrant and refugee communities in Asian sanghas and then as myself identifying as an asian american and kind of straddling this divide of convert buddhism and a really uh, a different experience i have in in certain retreat settings where the demographic is primarily asian versus a more mixed population but like you said you know when i was growing up buddhist family but in an immigrant family, we also joined the local Korean church. You know, it was our way of connecting to resources and community. So that's the a part of the social context of healing. And you mentioned the material culture of 
material facets or material culture of healing. And these are so prominent in Asian American uh, religious context or Buddhist context. Can you tell us a little bit about this study or this research? Yeah. So this study was actually, it started bef before the previous study that we talked about. The publication came out a little bit before in 2019. And this study is, the, the name of the journal article is The Varieties of Buddhist Healing in Multi-Ethnic Philadelphia. And it is the a report from the Jivaka Project. So that's J-I-V-A-K-A dot net. It's a on, it was an online project that I had my students doing where my students were going around to temples in Philadelphia, taking photos, doing interviews. Um, and eventually we made some documentary films as well with uh, my collaborator, Lan Lee, um, who is um, collaborates with me on my podcast now, uh, Blue Barrel. So um, we were gathering this data for the website as like an interactive educational pedagogical project with my students. And as the data was coming in, it became more and more interesting to me and more and more important the, that this data was actually revealing something important about the relationship between Buddhist institutions and healthcare more generally in this American city. So I, I should say my the students that were doing the studies, so my college, Abington College, is very diverse campus with many students from the Philadelphia area. We're, we're actually an Asian American Pacific Islander serving institution, which means that our the percentage of our students that are Asian is much higher than than the norm across the US. And so I, I had I was teaching these courses on Buddhism and Asian medicine and so forth. And so I had in my classes the privilege of having students who were from Asian American communities in Philadelphia, many of whom spoke Asian languages and whose family members or even them themselves were members of these temples in the area. So there was a, a lot of access that, that my students were able to have in these temples when they went around and started interviewing. We were getting a lot of really interesting uh, responses, very detailed responses from the communities. And it allowed us to, so our interviews were focused on the relationship between Buddhism and health, healthcare. And it, what this uh, what started to become apparent from the data, um, one was just really the sort of the range, the repertoire of healing practices that was being practiced across all of these different institutions around Philadelphia, and just really the wide range of different ways that the temples were involved in healthcare. And then because it was a multi-ethnic study, multicultural study, where we were looking at all these different varieties of Buddhism, all these different kinds of different communities across the Philadelphia area, we were able to like look for patterns or look for differences um, between the between those communities' engagement in healthcare. And I was looking at me as somebody who was familiar with the scholarship on American Buddhism. I was looking for these strong divides that were supposed to be 
characteristic of the American Buddhist landscape, right? The American Buddhist landscape was supposed to, according to the scholarship, have these strong divides between convert Buddhists and what they call heritage Buddhists, right? So people who were born and raised in a culture where Buddhism is practiced versus people who who were converting, who didn't have that background, and how split these two communities are in terms of their gatherings, which is true. You do have white sanghas, Lao sanghas, Thai sanghas, Chinese sanghas, Black and Latino sanghas, right? And they do tend to be split in those ways. And of course, they also have their sectarian affiliations. So you have Mahayana sanghas, and you have Theravada sanghas, and you have Vajrayana sanghas, and so forth. So while the landscape is divided in that way, when we were looking at specifically looking at healthcare as the thing we were looking at, it actually split out radically differently. So so it, it was like pushing back against the kind of the divisions that scholars have made about American Buddhism when we started looking at the factors related to health and medicine. And, and there, it started to become more apparent that there were other factors at play that were more, that were a lot more influential about shaping how these sanghas were involved in medicine beyond race, ethnicity, and sectarianism. So some of those factors included socioeconomics of the neighborhood. They included demographic factors of the neighborhoods in which these temples were located. And they also included access to uh, social media resources and connections with the home country. So there was a number of different factors that I lay out in the article that seemed to be much more important to the communities than, like I said, than race, ethnicity, and sectarian affiliation. So yeah, so there was, it's, and then I gave a couple case studies in the article too, just to paint a richer picture of the ethnographic field. So the article's trying to do two things. One, it's just like give a detailed picture of what Buddhist healthcare looks like in Philadelphia. And then also to make this broader point that, you know, about what factors seem to be the most relevant in, in influencing what people do. And just, I guess, like maybe a takeaway point to mention is that it really appears that in many cases, Buddhist temples are serving to fill gaps in the healthcare system, particularly, this is particularly true for immigrant and refugee communities where the Buddhist temples are really facilitating access to healthcare for these populations that, you know, that, and fill both gaining access to mainstream biomedical and public health infrastructure, but also filling gaps with traditional medicine, with other kinds of practices, with facilitating word of mouth and other kinds of information exchanges among the temple goers related to health and healing, traditional foods and other kinds of cultural practices. Um, and just really sort of the article is really trying to highlight how important the Buddhist temples are in the modern American healthcare landscape, which I think is a completely glossed over point that I haven't heard anybody talking about really. Again, there's mindfulness, right? but this is like looking beyond mindfulness at, at a, a much broader range of social and cultural healing practices. Uh, we talk about this a, a lot in modern yoga studies, but you use the word transnationally interconnected nature of Buddhist healing in the U.S. today. And you also spoke about the diversity in local contexts. But uh, hybridity, when I think about it, 
I think about medical pluralism. I think about healthcare consumerism. You have your choices and the way that you understand your illness or disease, and you address aspects as a consumer in healthcare, aspects of illness experience through different doctors, therapists, herbs. But you're pivoting to a research, independent research that looked at Buddhist healers in the US. And as a clinician myself, I practice Chinese medicine, but I draw Ayurveda or Tibetan medicine. Is this what you are finding in your Buddhist healer subjects? So, yeah. So I, as a scholar of cross-cultural exchange and translation of Buddhist medicine, what I always look at is like both sides of the coin. There's the, the transnational, the pan-Asian Buddhist tradition, right? Like what's similar between... Chinese Buddhism, Indian Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, Japanese Buddhism, and when these when Buddhism moves to a new place, what are the elements that are brought from one place to the next and, and adopted in that new culture? So we can think of American Buddhism, we can think of lots of aspects that are transnational. Um, so back to the Philadelphia article, a lot of these temples in Philly are connected directly with their branch temples of temples located in Seoul and in Bangkok and all over Asia. Um, and so there's a, literally a transnational institutional context. There's also transnational movement of people, right? Monastics coming from Thailand to serve as monks in the temple outside of Philly, right? And members of that temple going to the mother temple in Bangkok and like back and forth, you know, and they'll bring herbal medicines back from Thailand when they come back, right? And share it with the community or they'll, so there's an actual like flow, transnational flow of people, ideas, institutions, and medical material culture as well. And it's not just happening with Thailand, it's happening with all of the Asian countries in, in, in this kind of like very fluid kind of exchange between Philadelphia and the rest of the Buddhist world. So you could look at Philadelphia as like a node in the Buddhist world right? And all the flows that come through Philadelphia from or from other Buddhist countries. And that's like looking with a transnational sort of like lens, right? But then you can change the lens and look at like the, not, not what's being adopted here, but how things are being adapted here, right? So the other side of the coin, which is the way that these practices, the way that these ideas that these people, these cultural phenomena get, get absorbed in the US and how they're transformed by local situations by local expectations by local interactions with different different groups than you would have back in asia right by local laws legal landscape here in the us is different by just a, lo a different media sphere different kinds of discourses that are happening here in the us right and also by the kind of juxtaposition of these Buddhist practices with all sorts of other practices from all sorts of different kinds of Buddhism, but also different kinds of religions altogether that are all mixing together in, in a place like Philadelphia. Um, and it just creates a whole different, a whole different practice on the ground of Buddhist medicine, right? So, so, so I'm always, as like I said, like a scholar of cross-cultural exchange and translation, I'm always looking at like the transnational context and the local context, both together and how they're like in a dynamic interplay with each other. So that, that's what I meant earlier by transnational. Um, Tell us a little bit about this research with Buddhist healers in North America. Yeah, yeah thanks for getting me back on track. <laughs> so this, this, this other article is, yeah, it's, it hasn't come out yet. It's going to come out in the Oxford Handbook of American Buddhism. 
And this is a different survey that I did with a far smaller number of people, 36 respondents in this case from, again, it's through my own social contacts that I was able to talk to these people. And this is again, a, but, but, but again, it's an attempt to be representative of a wide swath of Buddhists. So there's racially age, gender, immigration status, location across the U.S., the, the Buddhist sect, all of that is variable across the 36 different people. And in this case, rather than have an online survey, these were in-depth interviews up to two hours talking with each one of these people about their practice, about what they what what they do and how they do it and what they think about the relationship between Buddhism and medicine. So again, there was a little bit of like a keyword or uh, thematic tagging that was done to the transcripts. In this case, we spat out like, like hundreds and hundreds of pages. I think it was 300,000 words of interview transcripts and had some textual analysis on the transcripts to find like themes that, that came up. So I don't know if you want to get like down into the nitty gritty of that kind of data, but th the main point of this article was like to take a step back and look at what I call the positionalities, the different positionalities that emerge from this, from this group of respondents. So I'm all 36 of these people were they identify as being Buddhist in, involved with Buddhism and healthcare in some way. But when we talked to them about what that involvement meant and what that involvement looked like, it broke out into these different kind of positionalities, what, I, what I'm calling positionalities. And they all have something to do with hybridity. So we found a, a, a cluster of these Buddhist healers who were actively incorporating Buddhism into mainstream healthcare. So they work in a health mainstream healthcare setting like a hospital or whatever, and they're actively integrating Buddhism into that context. So the second positionality is people who are integrating Buddhism with traditional Asian medicine. So maybe somebody like yourself, you just described an acupuncturist, but also like drawing on Buddhist Buddhist rituals or Buddhist practices, right? So that that was our second cluster of people. The third cluster of people were people who were Dharma teachers, so not, not working in biomedical or traditional medicine, but just Dharma teachers. Uh, but yet in their sanghas, they are integrating healthcare priorities into the way that they're teaching Buddhism. So I called that optimizing Dharma teachings for health outcomes, right? So teaching Dharma, not necessarily all the time, but in in response to our questions, my questions about Buddhism and health, they would talk about how in their sanghas they are teaching their, um, yeah, they're teaching their sanghas to apply Buddhist teachings in order to optimize health. Yeah. So the last of the positionalities is I struggled to find a name for this, and what I wound up just calling it was people who are eclectically mixing religion, spirituality, and healing. And what I mean by that is people who are like combining multiple different threads together. So Buddhism combined with like new age practices or crystal healing, or, or um, there, there was one practitioner who was Chinese American who was incorporating all sorts of different like Taoist and Chinese medicine and Buddhism all together. So these, these this was the most diverse in terms of the practitioners because they're really, we're combining all sorts of different things from one another. So, but yet there's this underlying dynamic, right? Where they are freely incorporating different kinds of practices and mixing them together, as opposed to 
say the Dharma teachers or the traditional medicine. Uh, maybe this is something interesting to get into, but each one of these groups had like a unique focus in the way that they would, were talking, what they were emphasizing about Buddhism and medicine. And so for the traditional medicine people, so the people who are combining Buddhism with traditional medicine, for them, they were by far, the, they were the only group that really um, emphasized uh, authenticity and textual, formal textual training. So that was the group that was talking about the need for like intensive study of traditional medicine and really um, basing that on texts and basing that on tradition and having the importance of the lineage and so forth. So that's maybe an anti-hybridity kind of standpoint in a certain respect, even though they're combining Buddhism with traditional medicine, they still are like having a the idea that these are traditions that need to be preserved, that, that need to be that you need a lot of training to get into. And that's in in contrast with this eclectic group, the last group, who were much more freely reaching for all kinds of different practices and mixing them together, irregardless of the lineage. And what mattered more for them, this was the only group, the eclectic group was the only group that really emphasized the kind of the charismatic or individual kind of power of the healer themselves, right? So like these healers were focused really on their on their abilities as individuals. They had special abilities. They had special access to special powers that enabled them to pull together all of these different practices. And so this is the only group that emphasized that. Then you have the the, the first group that I talked about with the people who are incorporating Buddhism into a biomedical setting. And for them, they were really focused on just how simple Buddhist teachings are, right? In contrast to the other groups, their whole point was, you just need a little bit, a tiny bit of Buddhism in the in the medical setting, right? Just a little bit of mindfulness or a little bit of peaceful, paying attention to your breath to have these huge health benefits, right? So they were focusing on the ease and simplicity which, with which Buddhism could be incorporated. Two things that come to mind in the adoption of Buddhist medical ideas and practices is making it meaningful and efficacy having it be effective in our lives. So just to bring back these strains, these strands of thought, we were talking about medical pluralism. For me as a Chinese medicine practitioner, I think of biomedicine in a local context. I also think of classical medical pies or schools or streams. And as a practitioner, we bring these together. There's this other notion of integration and hybridity. We have this kind of braided knowledge or we make meaning as a practitioner or clinician so that we're more effective and we can be more culturally competent and connect with others. Do you see these in your understanding of the global history of medicine? Are these common patterns? Or are we in a new era transnationally where the exchange of knowledge is changing uh, what Buddhist practice is and how what it amounts to in terms of healing? I think it's both. So for the first time, we are in a situation where you can literally access every form of Buddhism that's ever existed from your armchair, right? Like on the, online, you can read about the teachings, you can access books by the millions on every aspect of Buddhism that you can imagine. It's also so like atomized, like all of the information has become so pixelated and circulated in these nano-sized little bits that you have like 
memes all over the internet or you have like little like sayings or, or, or quotes that are circulating, whether or not the Dalai Lama actually said it, who cares? It's they're, they're just all over the place, right? Of all these kinds of, all of these different ideas related to Buddhism and health and Asian medicine and so forth. And they're all, I, I picture just all these little pixels just all circulating around the world and getting combined together in novel ways by people all over the world that have access to this information and all sorts of new combinations are being created constantly by each individual person, right? So, so there's that, that's new. That certainly is a much more fluid picture of cultural exchange than what I study happening in the medieval period with like a text that one pilgrim brought from India to China and then translated into Chinese, right? So it's a very different kind of like environment for cross-cultural exchange. And the speed at which it happens and the sort of the scale on which it happens is completely different. But some of the dynamics are, I think, the same or quite similar as they always have been, which is that human beings in the face of a variety of different ideas circulating around through their worlds, human beings collect up those ideas into certain packages or certain kinds of like threads or certain kinds of units that they create G's and create social organizations and create boundaries around. And then they argue with each other over which ones of those are the authentic ones, which ones are the true ones, which ones are, are the, the, the real teachings. And then there's a social process whereby society determines or different social groups determine which ones of those arguments are legitimate and which ones aren't right and so like it happens all the time that new configurations of things come together and they seem very different than what's happened before but they become authorized by the society and these new forms become major trends or major kinds of uh, new novel constructions when we look at the past in history, we can see that happening. And we as historians will say like, oh, look, this is the birth of Mahayana, right? Or this is the birth of Vajrayana, or this is the birth of Chinese Buddhism, this new tradition, right? It's constantly happening today too, right? But we just don't have the hindsight to know which ones of these new configurations are going to be the ones that are going to be remembered a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now. But as a scholar, like stepping back and looking like, all of these different sects all have that position and they're all arguing against each other. And my job isn't to determine which one is the authentic form of Buddhism. It's just to step back and look at the social dynamics that, that, that those kinds of debates produce or the, the cultural effects that those kind of debates produce. So that, that's my job as a scholar, right? So maybe not the most satisfactory answer for people who are interested in practice because it doesn't really lead to a firm answer about practice, but it's a, I think it's a really interesting perspective to, to also take this more sort of abstract, scholarly critical perspective and combine the two together and see where it washes out for individuals. For our scholar practitioners, researchers, and students, why don't we then shift to metadisciplinarity? Can you tell us about what you were bringing to the table in terms of new methods of pedagogy and learning in Buddhist studies. Yeah. So exactly where to start with that. I think probably what I need to do is start with a, just referring to a blog, a series that I wrote that sort of pre predated the publication of the academic article about pedagogy. So I have a series of blogs 
maybe written in like 2021 or so where they're on my website where what I'm talking, the series is called Meta Perspectives in Asian Medicine. And there's four installations to the, to the series. And what I'm looking at there is the tensions between the way that different groups of people have approached Asian medicine. You have a, a traditionalist's perspective, and then you have a, a postmodern kind of like scholarly perspective, right? Those are the two I was just talking about, where the traditionalist is looking for like the authenticity of the lineage and the postmodern scholars is like deconstructing the socially and culturally constructed nature of tradition. And then you have sort of people that are coming out of the biomedical or scientific background where they're really looking to like interpret and understand Buddhism and Asian medicine uh, from that perspective. And so you have these three kinds of like players in the field and all of them have, each one of them has their own communities and their own discourses and they're talking amongst themselves and not necessarily talking to the other groups, right? So practitioners have their communities, their Facebook groups, their Twitter feeds, their books that they read and, you know, scholars have ours and the biomedical researchers have theirs and we don't necessarily talk enough, I think. There's not really true kind of like cross-fertilization across those categories. And so I explore that in the in, in the blog. I guess the main point in the blog is just to say, um, I, the place I arrive at is to say that instead of trying to solve that problem by having one community's perspective win out over the others, we have to just settle into a place where we accept the differences that each group is approaching their the topic through just accept the differences and take on the perspectives of other people and like just hold them simultaneously instead of rejecting them outright so can you be a scholar who actually like deconstructs chinese medicine let's say but also can experience qi right and also can understand the biomedical research, right? Can you be a traditional acupuncturist who believes in the power of acupuncture, but also understands and takes on the academic critique of the constructed nature of tradition and also understand the biomedicine without reducing it down to one, which is what happens. So lots of people do what they think is interdisciplinary work where they're like, oh, I'm a, I'm an acupuncturist and I read all the scholarship and I understand the biomedical research, but in their minds, they're reducing the other perspectives down to their perspective, right? So, so what I'm saying in the blog is like, can you hold multiple divergent epistemologies at the same time without reducing one to the, to, to all of them to one? So from that standpoint, then you come to this article. So in this article, what I'm talking about is how like that plays out on a college campus with a series of collaborations that I experimented with over the years, different disciplines together to talk about, to talk about some of these topics. And what I realized was that if we're going to come together as an interdisciplinary team around a topic, if we're just going to argue about whose perspective is right, right? If that's what we're doing or, or reducing people's, reducing all of the arguments down to just my perspective, right? We're not actually doing interdisciplinary work. So I'm, what I'm arguing is for a different approach where we allow each one of the disciplines to have their own domain in the way that they study the topic and allow these perspectives to 
appear like sequentially in a course like okay here's the biomedical here's the traditional here's the historical here's the sociological here's the ethnographic etc in and rather than attempting to reduce them to one another have them stand as different epistemological approaches of equal status in the class and focus our conversation on what i call metadisciplinarity so when the professors are speaking, rather than trying to just like convince people of the rightness of my disciplinary perspective on this, instead to speak about met in metadisciplinary terms, it would be talking about here are the things that my discipline bring to light about this subject. Here are the new perspectives that my discipline bring forth about this subject and adding them like onto the table alongside when the biomedical professor gets up and talks about the science of mindfulness or whatever, that those are added to the table. And then the artist gets up and talks about the express expressiveness of how these ideas make them feel and how these ideas, they want to express them in art. Those are added to the table. And it becomes like a, a buffet of all sorts of different approaches that we can enjoy equally instead of like this impulse that scholars have to reduce everybody else's perspective down to my discipline that maybe that was too long of an explanation but that's what's going on in this article <laughs> wonderful it really gives uh an understanding of inroads to how buddhist studies can shift our way of studying subjects or approaching healing any last thoughts that you wanted to share uh in terms of contemporary the landscape of contemporary healing yeah i, I guess i would just say on the on the topic of this article before before leaving it behind is just like one one of the things that this that writing this article I was trying to get across is really like Buddhist studies can really be at the center of this kind of metadisciplinary collaboration because Buddhist studies and I give two examples of how that has happened on my campus how Buddhist studies has been the focal point for these kinds of interdisciplinary explorations and I think there's I think there's a lot of reasons why but one of them certainly is the that this metadisciplinarity idea of like holding multiple paradigms simultaneously and talking about the advantages and disadvantages of them as opposed to trying to like narrow them all down to one perspective like that is quite similar to a buddhist perspective on emptiness and skillful means right like like no one perspective is the ultimate perspective and let's analyze how using these different perspectives illuminates or elucidates different aspects for the benefit of the, of the whole right so yeah so so a lot of the methodologies that i bring forward in my academic work i i don't say it like this but they're influenced very heavily by buddhist ideas and so this is just another example of that kind of phenomenon in my, in my own work here's i want to thank you for taking this time it's wonderful to connect on these topics and yeah. i hope we can continue the dialogue further so yeah awesome yeah thank, thanks james it was great being here with you and uh yeah I, I love the questions you're asking and i realize that you have actually read and listened to um, quite a number of things i really appreciate that and, and it's fun to it's fun to be here and chat with you like this and thanks thanks for all the great questions absolutely where can people find your work at yeah i try to keep everything posted at i have a website which is just my name piercesalguero.com salguero is s-a-l-g-u-e-r-o and I try to keep that updated with whatever's going on. There's interviews, links to publications, and recorded talks and things like that are all there. 
And for those tuned in, the podcast I highly suggest is called Blue Barrel Podcast. And there's a whole list of wonderful previous or past interviews and more to come. Thank you, Pierce. Thank you so much, James. Yeah, fantastic. Thanks for having me on. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.